a dramatic health production. Forget genius. In many ways, the significant advances in modern medicine can be viewed as little more than the product of a happy combination of dumb luck and coincidence. As you're about to hear, some of healthcare's most significant milestones were the result of fortuitous accidents followed by scientific rigor. But serendipity and science alone don't improve health and healthcare. It took curious, creative, and persistent individuals to bring these accidental discoveries from the lab bench to the patient bedside. These are their stories. This is Game Changers in Medicine. Hello and welcome to Insulin, the bonus episode. Our first episode on this topic focused on the incredible twists and turns that resulted in Dr. Frederick Banting's discovery of insulin in the early 1920s. Today, we'll hear more from our expert panelists. Dr. Jay Schuyler of the Diabetes Research Institute shares anecdotes from the early days of his medical career running a summer camp for children with diabetes. This was back when blood sugar was still measured via urine, so you can imagine how challenging that would have been. I urge you to listen to the end of the episode when you'll be rewarded with Dr. Schuyler's healthy eating recommendations, some of the soundest and simplest advice I've ever heard. Toby Smithson also returns. Toby is a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified diabetes care and education specialist. She shares more of her deeply personal story of living with type 1 diabetes from the age of 8. And in the true spirit of the bonus part of this bonus episode, there's more. To round out our story on the discovery of insulin, it seems fitting to share a side discovery that could be considered a game-changer in its own right, as it has made diagnosing and managing diabetes easier for doctors and patients alike. Regular listeners of the Game Changers in Medicine podcast will remember Dr. H. Franklin Bunn from our episode on vitamin K. In addition to Dr. Bunn's many accomplishments, he is the co-discoverer of the hemoglobin A1c measurement, a breakthrough that was instrumental in developing the test used many millions of times per day worldwide to diagnose diabetes and prediabetes and also to monitor blood sugar control. Let's start with Dr. Bunn. Frank, can you reintroduce yourself to our audience and then give us some background on how the discovery of hemoglobin A1c came about? I'm H. Franklin Bunn. I'm retired professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and have been for a little over 50 years uh, on the staff at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And I've been in hematology during this whole period of time. I started training in hematology at Boston City Hospital in the 1960s and remained in Boston ever since. Probably maybe the only reason that propelled me to go into hematology was that when I was an intern in New York, I had the responsibility to care for a 14-year-old boy with severe thalassemia. Patients with thalassemia have severe anemia and a lot of other complications that in those days were very difficult to treat. 
over the next two years, I followed him as an outpatient. And I found that he was one of the most inspiring and bravest patients I had ever, ever encountered. At the time that I first saw him, he was very behind in, in his, his growth curve. He was slow to mature, but he uh, had the courage of a lion, and he went through a lot. He had liver failure, uh, heart failure, iron overload, uh, as well as severe anemia. So I followed him about once a month, and uh, I can remember one extremely poignant episode when I came in to see him in clinic and he said, Dr. Bond, I have uh, some news for you. And I, and I said, what's that, Alfred? And he said, well, I'm going out on my first date next Saturday night. And that brought tears to my eyes because uh, Alfred uh, was just barely at the age of, he was now 16, he was barely into puberty. And because he had a, a major set of endocrine problems that accompanied his liver and heart issues. So it just was an indication to me of, of how a patient can rise to the occasion and prevail over ex extreme um, setbacks and, 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 and chronic uh, health problems that for many patients would be deal breakers maybe a couple, about three months after I had this conversation with Alfred, he died actually. But his his blood disorder became of great interest to me, as well as, of course, him as a patient. And it propelled me to go into hematology and to be particularly involved in studying hemoglobin disorders like thalassemia and sickle cell, but also to do research on hemoglobin in general. In the process of working in the lab on general aspects of hemoglobin physiology and biochemistry, uh, it became apparent that the normal healthy human has a major hemoglobin component called hemoglobin A that comprises about 95% of the total hemoglobin, but they always also have a minor component, which has been labeled hemoglobin A1C. It it's, can be separated by laboratory technique called chromatography. But nobody really knew what the structure or the function of hemoglobin A1C was uh, until uh, some work that had been done just before uh, I came on the scene uh, by a, a close colleague and friend, Paul Gallup, a, a biochemist, at Einstein Medical Center. And then Paul and I came to Harvard Medical School about the same time in the uh, early 70s. And uh, Paul had found that there was a sugar attachment to hemoglobin A1C, which explained why it had a different mobility by this analysis that I mentioned, chromatography. But the basis for why it's there wasn't at all clear. When uh, I was starting to work on hemoglobin A1C with Paul Gallup here in Boston, a young clinical chemist in Iran named Sa Sam Rabar examined the hemoglobins of a large number of patients at the main hospital in Tehran 
and found that all of them had a normal level of hemoglobin A1C, except for those with diabetes who had elevations of two to three fold in this minor component uh, compared to patients with a wide range of other disorders. Just to remind our listeners, that minor component is actually hemoglobin A1C. So that fit really very well with Paul's discovery that there was a sugar attached to the hemoglobin molecule and hemoglobin A1C. So it led to the uh, idea that if patients have too much sugar in their blood, as diabetics do, that would result in an elevation in the level of this minor component. So it kind of begged the question of what's the actual structure of hemoglobin A1C. And I pursued this with Paul, and we determined the nature of the linkage and the fact that the sugar is bound to the hemoglobin by what chemists call a irreversible covalent bond. And that, it turned out to be important because it helped to understand why the diabetic would accumulate uh, so much hemoglobin A1C in the red blood cell. The idea that diabetics had increased hemoglobin A1C led to the thought that perhaps hemoglobin A1C would be useful in diagnosing diabetes and possibly with monitoring the level of hemoglobin in the diabetic patient. It might be useful here for you to explain how diabetes is diagnosed. So what's normally done and had been done for many years now is to measure the blood glucose uh, on a patient after fasting, so-called fasting blood glucose. And um, that's a reasonably good diagnostic test for the presence of diabetes. But it gives you only a snapshot into what the level of blood glucose is during the day in the diabetic. The hemoglobin A1C being a, uh, a molecule that has glucose uh, irreversibly bound to the hemoglobin uh, allows for the monitoring of blood glucose levels uh, on an integrated basis over a long time period because the red blood cell survives in the circulation um, for quite a long time, ab about four months. And so during the time that the red blood cell circulates, it will pick up glucose slowly but surely over the course of the red cell lifespan. The diabetic having intermittently elevated blood glucose will have elevated levels of of hemoglobin A1C, which will give the physician who's managing this patient a very uh, accurate picture of how well regulated the diabetic patient is in terms of day-by-day -day, uh, fluctuating levels of blood glucose. The, uh, the uh, whole purpose of uh, administering insulin, of course, is to lower the blood glucose but it has to be done very carefully. And the A1C hemoglobin measurement is very handy in order to, to tell the physician what kind of adjustments might be needed in insulin dosage in order to uh, get, ma maintain an optimal uh, degree of blood sugar regulation. One of the things that helped, I think, convince us and other people 
that this measurement had a, a great deal of relevance to the not only the diagnosis but also the monitoring of the diabetic was an experiment that I, I did on myself, uh, which today would have been illegal. You're really not allowed to do uh, any self-experimentation. But those days, things were a lot looser. In order to understand how hemoglobin A1C is made in the body, I actually injected myself with uh, radioactive iron and then tracked the blood samples drawn about every other day to determine how the radioactivity of hemoglobin A1C compared with that of the main hemoglobin component. Experimenting on yourself strikes me as unthinkable. But as you say, things were different back then. So what happened was that, the, as expected, the main hemoglobin component rose in radioactivity to a very high level very soon after the injection uh, and remained elevated uh, over the period of the red cells surviving for almost four months. Whereas the hemoglobin A1C had very low radioactivity to start with, but then it kept inching up gradually so it, it by about two and a half, three months, it approached the radioactivity of the major hemoglobin A component. So that then was proof that hemoglobin A1C was formed slowly and irreversibly uh, in the body over a period of time. And that insight then convinced the clinician that the measurement of hemoglobin A1C would provide an integrative picture of what's been happening in the patient's red blood cells over a period of a couple of months as the hemoglobin A1C accumulates. I'd like to circle back to what you said about diabetes being picked up by measuring a patient's fasting blood sugar. Has diabetes always been detected that way? Well, fans of medical history know that diabetes has been recognizable as a human disease for many centuries. And initially, physicians uh, had to rely on various sorts of specimens in order to help them figure out what's wrong with the patient. And so going back several centuries, the physician really didn't have much access to blood because you had to poke a needle through a vein in order to get a blood sample. And so that wasn't really practical or even on the radar screen for physicians several centuries ago. But they did have access to uh, urine as well as stool, as well as phlegm when, when the patient coughs up sputum. So those fluids were used by the clinician as best they could to help them figure out what was wrong with the patient. So for a couple hundred years, they stooped to tasting the urine of a patient. And if it tasted sweet, that would be an indication that the patient had uh, sugar in the urine. I know I speak for my medical colleagues everywhere when I express gratitude that clinicians no longer have to taste a patient's urine to diagnose diabetes. Thank you, Dr. Bun, for your extraordinary contribution to diabetes diagnosis and management. But as we've said before, management is not a cure. As our next guest, Toby Smithson, told us in our earlier insulin episode, diabetes management requires constant vigilance. Not surprisingly, there are psychological challenges that come with the stress of doing that. 
Toby is a registered dietitian nutritionist and an award-winning diabetes educator. She also has type 1 diabetes. Toby is such an enthusiastic ambassador for diabetes management that I was surprised to learn that for years she kept her condition a secret. Toby, at what point did you realize that having type 1 diabetes wasn't something you needed to hide? I actually had a very dear friend who was a registered dietitian and a certified um, diabetes educator, and she had the hard talk with me. I had been dating, and she said, Toby, you're spending a lot of time with this guy. I think you need to reveal that you have diabetes. I'm like, no, no, no. I was scared, so scared. I'm like, no, no, no. She's like, Toby, listen. And I knew she was right. So I set up a meeting um, with my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, uh, and I said, I have something to talk to you about. And I said, okay. I said, so there's something I need to tell. He's like, all right. But I was so nervous. I said, okay, here it is. I shoot up. I shoot up? What? And he's th- he was quiet because he's trying to think, wow, so what drugs are you doing? I didn't even know it came out of my mouth. He said, what are you shooting up? And I said, oh my goodness. No, no, I'm not doing drugs. The drug of choice is insulin. I take insulin shots. Thank goodness he was a biology major. So he's like, you have diabetes? And I'm like, yes. So now my, my, well, he wasn't my husband yet. My boyfriend who turned into my husband knows that I have diabetes, but I still was keeping it a secret. So uh, the story goes on with me coming out fully out of my closet, which was only 15 years ago. I still kept it a secret. You had to be really proved to me that you were a true, true, true friend if you found out about my diabetes. And this, I think, all goes back to my mom crying, you know, and telling me. It told me that something was wrong. And Since then, I have gone back to my parents to sit them down at the table. My husband came with me because I was too afraid to ask, to say, why did you advise me to keep this a secret? I feel like we're getting into some heavy stuff here, Toby. It can be a lot to confront one's parents, even as an adult. How did they respond? They said, poo, poo, poo. Like, what does that mean? And they said, my grandparents said, poo, poo, poo to them to say, no, we need to keep this a secret. We don't want her to be, you know, stigmatized in any way. She has a chronic condition. We don't want her to feel different. And my grandparents came from Europe. So they had that that thinking of we need to fit in and not make any waves. And so for all those years, I kept it a secret because that's what I was told from my parents. Thank goodness for my wonderful husband that he sat down with me 15 years ago and said, Toby, you are missing out on such an opportunity to share your story, share all the good things that you've learned about diabetes. And so I got on that fast train, full force ahead, got my diabetes educator certification and um started a website called Diabetes Every Day. I launched a YouTube channel, Diabetes Every Day, and it's all, you'll notice, 
all positive language. You're not kidding about full steam ahead. It seems like you went from keeping quiet to shouting from the rooftops. Yeah. And besides, YouTube channel, uh, website, wrote a book, Diabetes Meal Planning and Nutrition for Dummies. And that's a huge, a huge audience. And um, I coach people with diabetes on a daily basis. My population that I see is not necessarily newly diagnosed uh, people with type 1. I have a lot of people with type 2 diabetes. There's a lot more people with type 2 diabetes than type 1. And it just in my work setting, my audience tends to be adults, not children. And most of them have type 2 diabetes. But really, the story is very similar. How I explain it is between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is just one part of the management is different. And that may be the medication part, what type of meds you're taking. Uh, There's plenty of people with type 2 diabetes that take insulin, just like people with type 1. But otherwise, everything, all of the behaviors that um, you need to manage are the same, whether you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Can you share a bit more about those behaviors? I think there's some gifts, actually, when you're diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, Things like the, the seven core behaviors with managing the condition. There's healthy eating, being active monitoring your blood sugar, reducing risks, taking your medications as prescribed, learning about coping skills, uh, problem solving. But if you think about all of those, that really sets you on a really great life and lifestyle. I've found there's a lot of people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes that kind of put it off to the side. But this is every minute of the day. All of these actions that we do, whether we're more active on one day or we're eating more on one day or eating less or less active, all of those things factor in with our blood sugar readings. And it's really overall a healthy lifestyle. So uh, for some people, it will take a little bit time. I suggest uh, baby steps, you know, making small, small goals to achieve the outcome of basically good health. Everybody has their own story. It's very individualized. Well, your story, Toby, is certainly a powerful one. Thank you for sharing it with the Game Changers in Medicine audience. I also recently learned that you received the Diabetes Educator of the Year Award from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Congratulations on that incredible honor. I'd like to pivot now to our final guest, Dr. Jay Schuyler. Dr. Schuyler is a professor of medicine, pediatrics, and psychology at the University of Miami, Miller School of Medicine. He is also the deputy director for clinical research and academic programs at the Diabetes Research Institute. Somehow, he managed to find time to speak with us. Dr. Schuyler, I know you've been on the front lines of diabetes research for a long time now. Could you share what diabetes management was like in the early days of your work, particularly during the time when you were working at the summer camp for children with diabetes? When I first went to diabetes summer camp in 1970, and we had 100 kids with with diabetes who were there, the only way they could tell what was going on most of the time was to test the urine for sugar. And that was complicated. There were arguments whether you should use two drops of urine or five drops of urine. 
how much water you would mix with it to make it work. And then there would be an automatic procedure. You'd drop a tablet in it and it would boil. And then you'd have to compare a color. It was nightmarish for kids at camp. It was really a, not an adequate way of testing what was really going on in their body anyway, because it was already the urine that was coming out as opposed to knowing the blood that's coming in. They'd come to the infirmary maybe once or twice during the course of the camp, and we would stick their finger and measure their blood sugar uh, just to be sure we knew it pretty much where they were at. But it was it was a horrible mess. Our biggest concern was they were running around doing a lot of exercise. They would burn up sugar. We were worried that they might fall into coma from low blood sugar overnight. So we would go around to the cabins at 3 o'clock in the morning shine a light in their eyes, and if they didn't blink, we would wake them up and feed them uh, to be sure that they weren't getting too low. That sounds pretty intense, but at least nobody was having to taste campus urine. Subsequently, in the late mid to late 70s, we developed techniques where patients could stick their own finger and measure their actual blood sugar with a meter. The early meters were primitive. They had a, a needle that went back and forth. You had to estimate whether that was 80 or 70 or 90 whatever. And um, uh, it had to warm up for 30 minutes. And, uh, you know, you had to t use a, a, a stopwatch to time it that the blood drop was only on the, the strip for either 30 or 60 seconds, depending on the brand. And then you had to squirt it off with water and then put it into the, the device. It, I mean, it wasn't easy. We were asking people to do it four to eight times a day. And so those obviously improved and we got more automated, sophisticated machines that did that. But the real breakthrough was the development of continuous glucose monitoring, where you can wear a little patch on your body, on your arm or on your belly that transmits your blood sugar every five minutes to an iPhone or an Android phone. And so you, all you have to do is look at that to see your blood sugar. If it's reading that it's too low, you, you go consume sugar. Orange juice would work, apple juice I have everybody carry with them lifesavers all the time because lifesavers you can keep in your pocket and you pop three or four of them and you're you're in good shape uh, if your sugar is getting low. If your sugar is getting high, you need to go take extra insulin. Uh, if they're wearing an insulin pump, they can press a button to do that. If they're not, uh, insulin today comes in the pen where you just dial in the amount of insulin you want to take and press a button. They can keep that in their pocket or purse. So, so life has gotten a lot more simpler if the patient pays attention to things. One of the biggest problems we have is because peak onset is between 9 and 15. This is a disease which hits at adolescence when kids are trying to figure out their own life in the first place. And many of them at that age will say, I don't want anything to do with this diabetes. And they let themselves get in, in terrible, terrible shape and, and not really stay on top of things. And you know, trying to deal with the psychosocial issues of that is very difficult because, you know, as you go through adolescence, diabetes strikes it in every way. It interferes with everything you want to do. And you have to stop and think about it. But if you're willing to do that, then you can sail through adolescence and life um, with, with not too many problems. I think Toby Smithson is a good example of that. She's someone who was diagnosed at age eight but had the maturity to manage the disease from that very young age. Now, I know that you and your colleagues at the Diabetes Research Institute continue to work hard to find a cure for diabetes. I can't resist asking you the question that I'm sure you're often asked. 
Do you anticipate a cure for diabetes will be found in your lifetime? Care to hazard a guess? I'm optimistic that we're going to get there. And, you know, I hope we get there in my lifetime. I've been in the field for 53 years, so I do want to live to see it. Um, and, I, and I hope that I will. I hope so, too. As I'm sure do the approximately 460 million people worldwide who are managing diabetes. Continuing with our theme of finding a cure, you kindly share some of your research with us in our first insulin episode. Is there more you can tell us today? I know you're working on several promising studies. Well, my personal uh, research has mostly been in trying to preserve the insulin production in people with type 1 diabetes, either from when they get it to try to keep it going before, so it doesn't progressively decline to zero, or even to give it before they develop the disease to try to prevent it. And for 22 years, I led the National Institutes of Health's clinical trial network designed to do that. We started out in 1993 with a, a number of things trying to, to prevent type 1 diabetes and then to try to preserve beta cell function, mostly in new onset diabetes. We've had some success over the years. The success has been limited by the fact that there are multiple mechanisms that arise that lead to, uh, to type 1 diabetes. One is that the innate immune system, the system that's designed to protect us from background infections and the like, create an, an inflammation. If it's gone awry, it creates a background in which it is fertile grounds for destruction of, of insulin-producing cells. That's carried out by the adaptive immune system. That's where a body's immune system designed to protect us turns in a self-destructive mode. And that system has, has gone awry. And that's usually balanced by a protective component of the immune system that we call regulatory that, that tries to decrease the amount of destruction that the adaptive immune system is causing. So what we try to do in type 1 diabetes is bring those things back into balance, try to stimulate more of the regulatory and to try to turn off some of the adaptive and the inflammatory or innate background. And the other thing we try to do is improve the health of the beta cell so it can survive the attack. So ideally, we want to be trying to control the background innate immune system. We want to try to control and improve beta cell health. And we want to do that on those things on a continuous basis. If we're seeing the attack going on, we want to try to hit and stop the adaptive immune system from attacking the beta cells. And at the same time, we want to try to increase the regulatory immune system so that we can bring things back into balance. You have to do these things in a stepwise manner. People are seeing now with COVID that the vaccines under development, some of them have been put on hold because you get side effects. And so development of, of things is, is a process. And we've had some success. We have a, a drug which is called uh, thymoglobulin or anti-thymocyte globulin that we found can preserve beta cell function from the time of diagnosis out for at least two years. Um, and that's when the study ended, so I can only cite times for up to two years. But, uh, but it turns out that not only did it do what it was supposed to do, that is to say, knock out the, um, the adaptive immune system, but it allowed the regulatory immune system to increase during that period of time. So it, it actually turned out to be a twofer with one drug. And, and the, the, the amazing thing is patients only, or participants only received the drug for two days 
at the time they were enrolled, and two years later, they still had beneficial effects. But uh, one of the problems is that there are side effects with everything. And one of the side effects that was seen in about 60% of the people, that's six out of every 10, it's a lot of the folks who received the drug, they got something we call serum sickness, where the body gets a reaction against itself from changing the immune system in, in the first few weeks after they received the drug. It goes away. It's not a long-term issue. But what we're trying to do now in a, in a subsequent study that's being done mostly in Europe at the moment is to try to see if we can get to a lower dose that still will maintain the effect, but diminish the frequency of the side effect. And so these things proceed stepwise. It's an interesting uh, scenario. We've also proposed a study uh, that we want to do where we use this thymoglobulin together with a drug that is designed to enhance the, the regulatory immune response so that we might have a longer-term effect from it. And uh, we've, we're proposing that study to, uh, uh, to the National Institutes of Health. Uh, we have a, a meeting with them coming up to, to talk about it and, and see whether or not we should move forward with that. So there's several other things going on. That sounds promising indeed. Now, I understand that type 2 diabetes can be the result of unhealthy eating habits and lack of exercise. But do we know yet what causes type 1 diabetes? One of the suggestions that's been championed by a few people, uh, John Francois Bach in France and Anne Cook uh, in the UK, is, the, is what we call the hygiene hypothesis. Namely, that uh, in early infancy, babies are exposed to a lot of things, bacteria, viruses, other things that, that activate the immune system. To, it's a dirty environment and leads the immune system to be very aggressive against anything that that's there. If you take that away, the immune system is less active. And over time, when you follow people who've had a cleaner environment in youth, they're more prone to many diseases uh, of immunity, asthma, allergies, type 1 diabetes, and the like. The, the best example of that that we can cite easily is that before the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was much less diabetes in East Germany than West Germany because of the poverty. As they got cleaner when the Germanys united, their frequency of diabetes in East Germany went up to be up to match that in West Germany. And there's been a progressive increase over the last 50 to 60 years throughout most places where we've studied it. And it, it may be the hygiene hypothesis. It may just be that that the disease is triggered, we think, by viruses in early life and that there may be more exposure to to those and, and, uh, and the like. But uh, the genetics hasn't changed over that period of time. It's not that there's new generations producing things, but it's a complicated set of circumstances. But yes, type 1 is increasing, type 2 dramatically increasing because of the explosion of sedentary lifestyles and obesity. It's rather alarming to learn that both types of diabetes are on the rise. We know that in the U.S. alone, just over 1 in 10 people has some form of diabetes. And for our listeners who may be pre-diabetic, or for those of us who want to be sure we're doing all that we can to keep diabetes at bay, what recommendations can you offer us? We need to try to be more active. We need to watch what we eat and only eat when we're hungry. When we're not hungry, stop eating. Okay, folks, you heard it here. When you're not hungry, stop eating. But don't stop listening to our podcast.
If you missed our first episode on insulin, you can find the link on our website, gamechangersinmedicine.com. Or you can search for it on whatever platform you use to stream your podcasts. The title is Insulin, the lucky coin toss and improbable partnership that led to this life-saving elixir. I hope you enjoy it. A Dramatic Health Production. 